You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Why don't you tell someone beside you the title of my sermon this morning, The Killer and the King. The Killer and the King. At this time, if parents, uh, you have children between the ages of zero to six, you're more than welcome to bring them downstairs where there's going to be a children's program. Now, in case you don't know, I am uh, Pastor Ian. I'm the lead pastor here at Plus Life Church. And we definitely, on behalf of our team and our, our congregation, we want to welcome all of you for joining us this Easter service. I see a lot of new faces and a lot of returning faces here this morning. And so definitely glad for the privilege of having you all come and worship with us this morning. Um, of course, uh, this is, uh, there, there is going to be a potluck. There's going to be uh, some celebrations after this. So please do stick around for that. It's going to be a great time of Easter celebration. Now, before we get started with this morning's uh, program, can we do something together, right, before we get into it, right? And I'm not, I promise it's nothing physical. You're not going to get embarrassed by this. But, but uh, as, a, as a congregation, as a people coming together for Easter service, can we, can we do something? Can we make a commitment to the truth this morning? Is that okay? Is that okay with us, right? Can we, can we uh, you know, I, I want to make, as a speaker this morning, I want to make the commitment to you that I will preach to you the truth from God's word unap- unapologetically, right? With all, with all its facets, all the, the ups and downs of it, I will, that's my commitment to you this morning. But I want you as well, especially if, you're, if you want to get the most out of this, this Easter service, I ask you to be honest with yourself as well. Right? Be truthful to yourself as well. If at some point that, that, the, that you feel like I, I'm, I'm talking to you or, or something that I'm touching on is specifically directed for you, please don't brush it aside. Right? Listen to that small, small voice. And at the end of the service, there'll be an opportunity where we get to pray with you and we can have more of these discussions. Right? I don't want you to just sit there for the next 30 minutes or so and just listen to me talk. Let's try to be interactive with what's being discussed. And again, let's pursue truth this morning, right? The truth about uh, Easter. So is that okay with everybody here? Yes? Yeah? Good? Everyone's, yeah, okay. You know, it's Saturday morning. This guy's telling me to make a commitment already. What is this? Uh, Don't worry about it. Uh, Again, that's all I ask of you this morning. But if there's nothing else, can we jump into this morning's sermon? Yes? We're good. Someone Someone say jump for me. So, as mentioned this morning, we'll be looking at the true story of Easter, at least looking at uh, this passage that we just read, and really try to get, comprehend what Easter is truly all about. The truth is, Easter is not about an Easter bunny that hides multicolored eggs, and if you're expecting that story, sorry, that's, we don't do that here at this church, right? That's, that's not what we're about, right? It, Easter is a time where Christians from all around the world come to celebrate this historical event this, that changed everything, not just in the sense of history or culture or society, but more importantly, in, in terms of the quality of life, in terms of faith, in terms of hope and the destiny of humanity. We'll unpack more of that as we go along. But what I want to do for us this morning is look beyond sort of the historical event itself and look to the meaning of it, the reason of why all of these things took place. And I think a good place to start understanding all of that is in our passage that we just read in the Gospel of Luke. This 
portion that we just read from the Bible summarizes what Easter is all about, specifically in the story of this killer, this murderer named Barabbas, and the one Christians call King, Jesus Christ. I'm sure you, you know all the characters of, of the Easter story and, and all the importance that they play. Maybe you've heard of, of Judas Iscariot before right, and his role in the Easter story. Maybe you've heard of, of Pilate right, and, and, and maybe the, the, even the, the high priest or, or Peter themselves. I think we've all heard of the Easter story before and we know of the characters there. And it's kind of like my, my son Judah. My son Judah is uh, uh, turning three this year and he's been, uh, so he's been watching a lot of new shows. He's been watching a lot of Teletubbies, right, uh, as of late, and he knows all the characters to the show now, right? So if you ask him, okay, do you know who's this purple one? He'll tell you, this is Tinky Winky, this is Dipsy, this is Lala, who's this red one? That's Daddy. Okay, that's, that's, not, that's, that's not Daddy. I don't know who told you that. I don't know what the connection is, but, you know, that's uh, but anyways, but my point is he knows all the characters and all of that to say, similarly to us, I think we have a good grasp at who the characters are in the Easter story and their role in it. But if we really want to grasp the, 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 the significance, the importance, or the, the purpose and reason for this Easter season, we really need to look at the story of Barabbas and the exchange that takes place between him and Jesus, the, the killer and the king. And listen, this isn't just me looking at, at this passage and trying to find some importance or significance in this small detail of Scripture. The writers of the Gospels themselves saw importance to this event during Easter. Hence why all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, records this exchange, records this thing that takes place between Barabbas and Jesus. And as we'll see, the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Bible, reinforces the importance and significance of what takes place place in our passage. So my hope this morning, church and church friends and family, is that we unpack the significance of this exchange that takes place, that we would really come to understand what Easter is truly about, why we've gathered here this morning. And it's not for the food, right? It's not just because we want to see old faces, but because we are celebrating this monumental event in all of history. So Let's take a look at this. Why is the story of Jesus and Barabbas so important? Well, first and foremost, it's recorded to preserve the Savior's innocence. To preserve the Savior's innocence. Three times in this chapter alone, Luke makes it a point to, to, to state that Pilate found Jesus innocent, not guilty of any crime. First, in verse 4, we didn't get to read that, but it says that when Jesus first stands before Pilate, the Roman governor says, I find no guilt in this man. Then verse 14, he's not guilty of any charges. And again, in verse 23, Pilate for a third time says in front of all the people that there is no guilt in Jesus deserving of death. Now, if you've studied, studied your Bible, you know that there's a pattern in Scripture that whenever something is repeated at least uh, multiple times, specifically three times, it's often because the writer is trying to emphasize a point or communicate a distinction between the things. Uh, for, for example, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. It's not just an emphasis on the reality that God is holy. It's also communicating a distinction, a quality of God that he alone has. Where, where someone can be called holy because maybe they're set apart from others, maybe they have qualities about them that are, are good. God's holiness transcends the holiness of anyone else. 
He is above all. He is higher than all. He has qualities that, are, that only, he, only he has. He is higher than anyone else. There is a distinction made about God's holiness throughout Scripture, and it's communicated by the Bible saying that God is holy, holy, holy. Now, similarly, this is what Luke is trying to communicate in our passage. Jesus was innocent, 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 so to speak. Meaning Jesus was, wasn't, wasn't just not guilty of any crime. He has a quality about himself that is pure, unblemished, righteous, and more importantly, without sin. Sin is the part of the human nature that causes us to, to lie or steal or hate or one another. It, sin is the reason why people are so prideful and, and are selfish and why the world has bad things in it and bad people. We'll talk more about this later but the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus, though he was tempted, though he, was, he went through trials similar to us, he did not sin. He was sinless. It wasn't in his nature to sin. Now, why is this so important that Luke has to emphasize this in our passage and make this distinction? And by the way, it's not just Luke, right? And the other gospels as well. The, the other gospel writers make it a point to say that Jesus was innocent. He'd committed no crime. So, but why is this so significant to our story of Easter? Well, if you were here last week, you might recall that we were celebrating Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, the, the day to commemorate the event where Jesus comes riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, right? And in the timeline of events of Easter, that event took place the Sunday right before Easter, right before Jesus was crucified. Now, if you recall what I mentioned as well, before that, before that Sunday was known as Palm Sunday to Christians, to the Orthodox Jews of Jesus' day, it was known as Lamb Selection Day. Lamb Selection Day was a special day in the Jewish calendar where the people would choose for themselves a lamb, a spotless lamb to sacrifice for the Jewish holiday of Passover. We read, we read about this in Exodus chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there as well. It's going to be on the screen here. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, it says, To all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Then in verse 5 it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This was a Jewish ritual of sacrifice, where God called the people to sacrifice an unblemished lamb or goat, meaning uh, in order to uh, to in order to uh, to cover themselves of their sins, to appease God's wrath for their sins, right? And of course, they were called to to find a lamb without blemish, meaning without markings, without any defects on this lamb. Now, as we just read, the people were to choose an unblemished lamb on the 10th day of that month. Again, that's Lamb Selection Day. That's what we know as Palm Sunday. And they were supposed to hold on to this lamb until the 14th day, until it was time for Passover and they would sacrifice it. Now, this gap in between the 10th day and the 14th day was specifically required in order for the lambs to be examined by the priests and to make sure that they weren't actually, uh, you know, had some spots, that they weren't just dyed white or something, right? That someone was just trying to sell some lambs up. They wanted to make sure in this, this time period that this, these lambs were actually pure and worthy of sacrifice. 
The tradition required that the lamb would have, would, that had to be sacrificed would have no blemishes, no defects whatsoever. So that's why that time period is there so that these lambs would be tested. And once tested after four days, if the lambs were passed, then they would be sacrificed. Now, you might see where we're going with this, the connection with Jesus in this. The Bible says that Jesus is the lamb of God. So the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, was Jesus willingly presenting himself as God's unblemished lamb. The lamb without fault or sin. And if you read all the events leading up to Easter, leading up to the crucifixion, then you know that Jesus was tested over and over again while he was in Jerusalem. The religious leaders would come up to him and ask him questions, try to trap him, and then to see if he would slip up. And then, of course, we know right before the crucifixion happens, after Jesus is betrayed, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jerusalem, and he's tested there as well, all night, in fact. And when they couldn't find any fault in him, as our passage, we, as we just read in our passage, they had to make up things. They said that Jesus was trying to start a revolution against Rome, that he was an insurrectionist. And, and, and so they bring him to Pilate, the governor of, of, of Jerusalem at that time, and where our, that's where our passage picks up. Pilate, as we mentioned, declares three times that he found no fault in Jesus, to emphasize again his innocence and All of this takes place to proclaim that Jesus was indeed the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. Now, Pilate in our story is so convinced of Jesus' innocence that he wants to release him, right? It says twice that he he wants to do whatever he can to release Jesus. So he comes up with this way. He presents the people with a very important decision to make. Let's look at Matthew's account of, of this story. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 15. Now, at the feast of the governor, this is the governor's again, Pilate, was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? This This was a very tactical ploy by Pilate who wanted to set Jesus free. He presented two options for the people, right? Here was, he, he said, okay, either I release Jesus, right? So this, this man who was already declared innocent three times, or Barabbas, who's already been convicted, who's already in prison, who's just awaiting his execution. Pilate was thinking, okay, this, is, this should be a breeze, right? The people will definitely pick Jesus, right? I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? Here's Jesus. He's loving on people. He's feeding the, 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 the hungry. He's healing people, right? Versus, here's Barabbas, who our passage says in verse 19, had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. John's gospel adds that he was also a robber. So here was innocent Jesus, and here was Barabbas, someone who actually tried to start a revolution against Rome. The same charges that the religious leaders put against Jesus. Again, you'd think this would be an easy choice, right? I mean, just, just, just a survey here. How many people would pick Barabbas? If someone put their hand up, I'd be very worried, <laughs> just, to, just to be sure. I'm sure everyone, you know, everyone's going to be a good Christian here and pick Jesus, right? I'm sure. Yes? No one's putting their hand up either? Okay, that's kind of weird. There's no third option, What's, right? But what we see in our passage, of course, verse 18 But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. The people chose the killer over the king. Now this happens for a very specific 
purpose, specific reason, two reasons actually. The first is to proclaim sin's infamy, to proclaim sin's infamy. This happened to show how depraved man's heart is, how sinful, how evil humanity is, to show that we, that if we were presented with the same choice, that we'd pick Barabbas over Jesus all the time. Because the truth is we're no better than the people who cried crucify him. All I always say here at the church, right, listen, don't believe what Oprah tells you, right? Don't believe that what Oprah says and it says that you're naturally good or that you're, uh, you're an inherently good person. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we love the darkness and hated the light. The Bible says that we are prideful, selfish, hateful, capable of so much evil. Again, that's all of us. It's you and me, the nice old lady down the street. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And listen, it's not just the Bible that says this. Every world religion in, in, in that, that's known to man recognizes that there's a problem. That there's an evil inside every human being. Some sort of sin that causes us to hurt people, that causes us to lie to others, that causes us to hurt ourselves. Sure, humanity has a potential for good, to do good things, but at our core, we are all sinners. And again, right, the agreement that we had this morning is to be honest with ourselves, right? Be honest with yourself. You know this to be true. If you have ever hated the way you think or regretted your actions in the past, or if you ever have hurt someone, or if, you, if, if you're hurting yourself in your selfishness or in pride, you know there's something wrong. You've ever told, if, you've ever, if you've ever tried to do good in this life, but it always seems like you end up, your, your, your bad ends up outweighing the good, you know this to be true. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, meaning every good thing that we could ever do, our good thoughts, our good intentions, our good motivations, all of it, even our, our righteous deeds, the Bible says, are like a polluted garment. This is referring to the rags that women would use in ancient times when they would be on their period. And as disgusting as that illustration may be, the Bible uses this illustration to emphasize how evil, how wretched we are. Even our good is that polluted. Even our good is corrupted by our sin. It's like trying to clean the floors while wearing muddy shoes, right? You can make all the effort you want. You can put in all the, the, the effort you want. But until you get rid of the muck, all our efforts are just in vain. But the infamy of sin doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at the evil things that we do or the evil things that we, the, the evil things that we do to others or to ourselves. The Bible says that there are consequences to our sins. Not just in this life, but more terrifyingly, sin has consequences in the next life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, that the reward of sin is death. This is not just talking about physical death, although that is part of it. The original Greek word here is thanatos, meaning an all-encompassing death, a death beyond death, a spiritual death, which the Bible calls hell. Hell is a place where sinners go to be punished for their sins because 
You have to understand more than just a crime against others or, uh, or yourself. Sin is a crime against the holy God. Remember what we said earlier, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Therefore, his standards for good are much higher than our own. It also makes sin, our sin, a grievous crime against him. The Bible actually describes it as cosmic rebellion against God. We're the insurrectionists. We're the rebels against God because of our sin. And as a result, hell is our punishment place where Jesus himself says, where the worm does not die and the fires are never quenched. Of all the people who talk about hell in the Bible, Jesus talks about hell the most. He warns people about it the most because it's not a place that we want to go. It's not a place that we would want to be in. Don't believe the depictions of hell on, on, on TV and in the movies where everyone is just partying and having a good time and the devil's your friend. It's not that. The Bible says that hell is a place of torment, of punishment of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a place that you'd even want your, your worst enemy to be in, much more yourself. But the Bible says because of our sin, same sin that drove people in our passage to cry, crucify, crucify him, this innocent man, crucify him. That same sin that gets us to lie to our wives or hate our husbands or that, that's the same sin that causes pride in us and causes us to act selfishly and hurt others and, and even yourself. The Bible says that in our sin, our destiny is hell. Our punishment is hell. That's the point of this passage. It's to show that even when we are presented with the ultimate good, and the ultimate good in this case is Jesus Christ, our sin nature would always cause us to choose Barabbas instead. Now you might be thinking, well, that's not really hopeful, right? I thought this was a celebration. He's getting me down, man, my vibes, right, or whatever. I thought it was an Easter celebration. Well, don't worry, we're going to get to it. See, another reason as to why the story of Jesus and Barabbas is so important and why, it's, why it explains the reason and the purpose of Easter is because it, because it serves to parallel salvation's imputation. See, the story of Jesus and Barabbas is a story of substitution, a great exchange that takes place. Where Barabbas should have died for his crimes, Jesus took his place. That cross that Jesus died on should have been the cross of Barabbas. He's the one who, who rebelled against Rome. He's the one who robbed and murdered and was found guilty already waiting for his execution. It should have been him who was nailed to the cross, but Jesus took his place. Jesus paid for Barabbas' crimes while, that, while, that, while he got to walk away free. Theologians call this concept substitutionary atonement. Big word, I know. We actually see a foreshadow of this event in the Old Testament where God commands Aaron, the high priest, to take two goats. One goat would be accepted by God, would be devoted to God, while the other goat, all of, all of the people's sins would be placed on that goat. And then it would be sent off into the wilderness to die alone. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. You can read all about it in Leviticus 16. But the principle here is the same. One goat is accepted, the other is rejected. One man was freed, the other was condemned to die alone outside the city. Barabbas was released. Jesus was scourged, the Bible says. 
That's what, what Pilate was talking about when he said, I'll, I'll punish him, right? I, I, I won't just let him go. I'll punish him first. And he says it twice. He's talking about scourging. The Romans had this tool where it was a cat of nine tails. It had these nine straps, and at the end of these straps would be these metal pieces and these glass pieces, and they would whip the victim, tearing their flesh. Where Barabbas was freed, Jesus was given a crown of thorns. Roman thorns were four to six inches long. These thorns were driven into the skull of Christ. Where Barabbas was acquitted, Jesus was given this 150-pound cross to carry up a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Where Barabbas was unbound, Jesus had nine-inch nails driven into his hands and into his feet, nailed to a cross so that he would not, be, so that he would not get away. Where Barabbas was freed from his punishment, Jesus suffered hours on the cross where Barabbas got to live and was acquitted of his crimes Jesus died alone and rejected and listen here's what Easter is about this is what we're celebrating today our hope in all this Jesus didn't just take Barabbas's place on the cross he took our place on the cross. We're the ones who should have died. We're the ones who, who hurt each other. We're the ones who, who sinned against each other. The ones who rebelled against God in our sin. We're the ones who should have died on that cross. But Jesus took our place. Isaiah chapter 53. Beautiful passage in scripture. Written over 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. It says in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Similar to how Aaron the high priest put all of, uh, all of the people's sin on that one goat. God put our sins on Christ, the Lamb of God. The punishment for our sins was placed on him. Now, the exchange doesn't happen there where Christ takes our guilt. Christ then credits, he confers his innocence to us. Look at verse 11 of that same passage in Isaiah. He says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is the great exchange that takes place. Christ takes our sin and he gives us his innocence. His righteousness, meaning that, that perfect life that Jesus lived, the, the life without sin, he credits it to us. As if we're the ones who lived it. This is why Jesus was declared innocent three times in our passage. Why he presented himself as the unblemished, spotless lamb of God so that we could be made righteous in his place. This is what theologians call double imputation. Christ imputes, he credits his righteousness to us. Meanwhile, we impute, we credit our sin to him. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. And did you catch that, by the way? It says, for our sake. God did this for our sake. Why would Jesus willingly give himself for the, for the crimes of another? Why would Jesus willingly put himself to the cross for a sinner in the place of Barabbas, in the place of us? Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why the story of Jesus and Barabbas is so crucial and depicts the reason for Easter. Because while we were still lying, while we were still hating, while we were still hurting each other, hurting ourselves, rebelling against God, Christ willingly and lovingly died for us. And the story depicts it all. It illustrates how Jesus, what Jesus did on our behalf, the payment for our sin he made on our behalf. Remember that verse that we read earlier, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that price. Jesus paid the wages for our sin. He went through hell for us on the cross. And listen, the, the good news that we are celebrating this weekend is that his payment was enough. That Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was enough, was sufficient to cancel out the record of debt that we owed because of our sin. And we know this because three days later, Sunday morning, what we celebrate tomorrow, Jesus rose from the grave. Easter Sunday is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that declared that the work for our sins had been done. The payment was cleared. The sacrifice was sufficient to appease the wrath and the punishment of God for our sins. But even more than that, the Bible says that because Jesus rose from the grave, the promise is that those who are in him will not have to experience hell, but have eternal life with him. You will not have to experience the place of punishment, but the place of paradise instead, eternity with our God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Beloved, this is what salvation is. This is what the gospel is about, the good news of Jesus Christ, what Easter is all about. God, out of his great love for us, sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that those who believe in him would have eternal life. Faith, belief, that's all God requires from us in order to receive his free gift. It's not, it's not anything good that we could do. It's not how many times we attend church. It's not by good works. That's the difference between what we're celebrating in Easter and everything else and all the other world religions. All the other world religions say you need to do enough good to outweigh the bad. The Bible says we can never do enough good to outweigh the bad. The Bible says that Jesus did enough good to forgive our bad. It's not about good works. It's about faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. 
so that no one may boast. So that no one can say, look, I got into heaven because I went to church X amount of times. Or I got into heaven because I donated X amount of money to charity. It's all by the grace and mercy of a holy God. It's by believing in Christ's sacrifice that it was enough. That it was enough to satisfy what our sin owed to God. Faith is simply recognizing that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves from our sin, nor the punishment of sin, and us simply throwing ourselves to the mercy and grace of a holy God. Because that was, that's what mercy and grace is. That's the exchange that is exemplified in our passage at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what mercy is. Mercy is God withholding from us what we actually deserve. And that is punishment. That is hell. That is, that, is, that is a place of punishment for our sin. Grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve, what we can never earn, namely forgiveness of sin, a right relationship with him, his love. So as we close this morning... The invitation is for all of us. And as we remember, as we started this, this, this sermon this morning, right, our commitment to the truth. And the truth is, each and every one of us needs Jesus. Because without Jesus, again, our destiny is to suffer in hell for our sins. We think this life is bad because sin has already damaged it. Sin has already hurt uh, others and us. The next life, if you don't have Jesus today, the next life will be much worse. Terrifyingly worse. I'm not saying this to scare you. I, again, my commitment to you this morning is for the truth. And without Jesus, that is the place that you will go. The call this morning is to repent. Repent of the sins that put Jesus on the cross. To recognize that it was our sin that Jesus died for. That Jesus was beaten for. That Jesus was scourged and nailed to a cross for. That Jesus took our place. The death that we should have died. The punishment that we should have had. The call is to repent. And put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't let this just be another Easter celebration for you. Just another holiday in the year. Don't be, don't be like the, the mob who cried, crucify him, just because he was part of the festivities, right? Because, that's the, because the reality is that that could be us this morning as well. Maybe we're just here because someone invited us because we heard there's food. Understand, you're here for a purpose. You're here to, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear what Christ did for you. Don't let, this, don't let this just be another Easter, just another holiday, another weekend. Let this be a day of salvation, a day where you put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Easter is about this great exchange where the king gave his life for the killer, where Christ gave his life for you and me. Let's pray.
gracious God and Heavenly Father. In this sacred moment, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would move. That God, those that you've brought here for a specific purpose, those of you that you've brought here, O oh Lord, to plant the seed of the gospel, that their hearts would be open, that their hearts would be good soil at this time. That they would not quench your spirit, that they would not grieve your spirit at this time, but Lord, if you are calling them to you, if you are calling them to turn from sin, and to put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that Jesus made on their behalf, I pray that there'd be no hindrance at this time. No resistance at this time. I pray that the war would be over in our hearts and that we would desire for peace with you, reconciliation with you. Even for the believer that has been struggling in sin or wandering away, I pray, oh God, that you would put the weight of the cross, the horror of the cross on their hearts and their minds this morning. That they would be reminded, oh Lord, of the suffering that their Savior went through on their behalf. That you'd bring the prodigals home. That you would free those who are enslaved by sin. Oh God, let this be a day of salvation, I pray. Let this be a day of breakthrough, O oh Lord, where salvation is proclaimed in our church. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would be reminded of the joy of our salvation. Not just what you did for us on the cross, but what you did for us in the grave and in your resurrection. The resurrection that promises us that we will not have to face hell, that we will not have to face punishment, but that we will have eternal life with our King and our Savior, the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that you renew our hope, that you renew our faith in you this morning. And again, for those who have not put their faith in you, that God, it would start today. I pray that repentance would come, that forgiveness would come, salvation would come. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.